for May 24th, 2010. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 99. Of course it's an electric dog. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Lost Finale is going on, which means the inmates are running the asylum, and from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the only town in Greater Boston with its own fresh water supply, I'm your host, Peter Fenzel, here with our panel to overthink the things we do with our time, other than watching Lost. Uh, as you know, or may not know, the Overthinking It podcast records at 9 o'clock to around 9.15 to around 11 or so on Sunday nights, which means that several of our members are busy right now, but we're not, and we will not be stopped. We will not be deterred. So, if you have any questions, you can email us at podcastoverthinkingit.com, or you can dial us at 203-CUJO-401. That's 203-285-6401. And make sure to fill out our listener survey. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm using my uh, auditory, my fancy voice, because, you know, I've got my top hat and tails on. Our question of the week for our illustrious panel of top-notch quality people who aren't Rather, although Rather's also a top-notch quality person. You don't watch Lost. What do you do with all that time that you get left over when you're not watching Lost? What are you doing instead? So, I will defer being the host to not be first in alphabetical order, and will instead turn to New York City, the city so nice that it used to be the capital of the United States in the 1700s. Mark Lee, hit us up with the answer. What do you do other than watch Lost? Uh, I was thinking a lot about this, and it's not really so much about watching other TV shows, because as I've mentioned before many times in this podcast, I'm not really a heavy serial TV watcher. It's not like I've been spending it watching Mad Men or The Wire or things like that. The honest right. to God truth is I spend it clicking around on the internet. I got <laughs> um, uh, like a few dozen Google reader feeds. I got uh, about 500 unread items right now, and it's going to take uh, you know a couple hours to read through all of them after uh, after this <laughs> podcast is over. I got uh, Engadget and the unofficial Apple weblog. I got to catch up on my gadget news and everything. It's just not enough time for you know smoke monsters and serialized drama on an island. So that's do you, what I'm doing do you get uh, do you get upset when people post spoilers to trade shows on Twitter? Oh, I get um, so upset. <laughs> oh no. man, no, it's really actually excited. it's it's uh, it, maybe some people do. I don't know, um, but I feel like in the in the tech world, it's all about like having all the little bits and pieces of information uh, in whatever form you can get them, atomized or not. Uh, to your smartphone as immediately and as quickly as possible, so you're in the know and that. Um, uh, there's, there's, because you already have the backstory. There's no matter sort of like catching up, of sort of. Right, 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 right. But may, no, no, ever... there's maybe some like crazy Apple fanboys who don't want the, the Apple thing to be spoiled until they get to watch the, the Steve Jobs uh, video and see it come from his his mouth himself. Have you ever turned on a smartphone and gotten a call from a polar bear and wondered why the polar bear is calling you? Funny you should mention that. <laughs> that happened the other day. Oh, really? It did. I think we'll, we'll save and, that and one for the, the show, he, he told me that the show, everything is just a dream. Oh, it's just a dream? <laughs> I used to read Word Up magazine. And down in Philadelphia, without any segue whatsoever, Josh McNeil. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, so rather than watching Lost, uh, I have been going back on Hulu and watching Lost to oh. catch up. <laughs> Uh, and I'd hope to do Wait, that by the are finale. You, 
Are you telling uh, me that not. you flashed you flashed backward in time and are watching episodes of Lost that took place or were aired in the past? Yes, so that while, eventually- while at the same time Lost is playing right now, <laughs> I've been watching – I've been in the past uh, seeing what was going on um, simultaneously. And uh, those two uh, those two versions of me are uh, similar, but uh, headed in different directions. <laughs> so, so the, the uh, calculating the Einsteinian relativistic velocity of you watching a rerun of Lost, in which people are in turn doing a flashback, like it's like you're flashing even farther back, right? It sort of launches it uh, backwards in space time because space and time are connected. Isn't that correct, Josh? It's true. It's true. Uh, <laughs> as uh, and uh, color is starting to bend as well. Color is bending. Yeah, it's uh, well, that may just be my TV. I thought it was relativistic, but I think it's just I have like a twenty-year-old TV. Ah, uh, okay, fair enough. Well, if color is bending, that can mean only one thing. In Brooklyn, it's Jordan Stokes. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm really enjoying coming up with segues and, and introductions for people. It's really nice trying to be the serious one for a change. Although I'm sure I'm going <laughs> to. <break. laughs> I'm going to break down with this after a little while, but I want this to be classy because we can have nice things, you know, like we're allowed to have nice things. So, Jordan, you're a fan of nice things. What do you do with all that time you save when you're not watching Lost? Well, I'll tell you what. See, I used to watch Lost. I watched the first season of Lost. And then over the summer after that season aired, before the the second season came along, I got heavily involved with writing Lost fan fiction. And in fact, I got so involved with that that I no longer had time to keep up with what was going on on the actual show of Lost. Plus, like, by the time the second season started, my fan fiction plot had diverged fairly heavily from where, like, they were actually going with the show. Like, Locke gets paralyzed again right off the bat. And, uh, and Sawyer gets together with Claire. And then by the time the army of the Dragon King arrives in my season three, it's really impossible to reconcile them anymore. So I'm, I'm actually really excited. You know, after I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to go type the final episode of my version, um, which is going to be a crossover with Saved by the Bell, the new class. <laughs> awesome. You know, I really love this stuff. <laughs> I love the flash sideways. I love the flash sideways where we watch the Dragon King at an accounting firm in uh, Columbus, Ohio. It's, it's just really, and you wonder what could have happened, what could have been when he became. Yeah, I'm like, and, and it turns out that he was actually an all right guy when you take him out of that situation. You know, I mean, he right. looks kind of funny in suit with all of his scales and flame, but. Mm-mm. Yeah, well, I mean, you did make that wonderful lithograph of him, which I really, uh, I really appreciate. You know that engraving that you. You remember you gave it to me for my birthday yet last year? Uh, the, the Dragon King of Lost. Or have we taken this too far? I think we've taken this too far. <laughs> <laughs> I could just like, we could just make up alternative plot lines for Lost the whole night. I mean, because it's, it's from the from my standpoint as somebody who doesn't watch Lost. Um, and of course, you know, some of the people on the podcast don't watch Lost either. Uh, the idea that the show could sort of be about anything at any given time is kind of makes me kind of giddy. Like the idea that, oh, tomorrow it could be about something entirely different. Like there could be a bunch of people living in uh, Astro vans or like there could be like a, a, an oil tanker or something or like whatever. Um, I mean, that's kind of amusing. You know, I like, the, I like it when anything can happen. I used to joke uh, back in high school that every book that I read in English class would be better if it ended with a ninja attack. But uh, which I think hmm. is what happens in Lost, but that would be a spoiler. I'm sorry. I should answer quickly for myself. My answer, I've made it pretty well known on the site, is that I take that time and I reinvest it pound for pound in watching 24, which is a far simpler <laughs> and lower quality show, but, <laughs> but one I enjoy tremendously. And one which has its series finale tomorrow. 
uh, where I can almost guarantee you the space-time continuum will remain unerringly and in, you know, just, just indubitably and just like inevitably marching forward second by second in real time. Pete, there's just not <laughs> enough time for divergent alternate universes. You know, every every time that show breaks to commercial, you get like tiny flash forwards of one second at a time. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's true, that's true. I, I love it if in Lost, every time they come across something that doesn't make any sense and they're compelled to do something about it, someone says, but it's the only lead we've got. And it's like, yeah. all right, because that's, that's how they justify doing absurd things in 24, which happens all the time. They just have very different ideas. I'm actually going to write a post about this, I think, for next week about Lost in 24 and their sort of similarities and the way that they deal with uh, emerging complexity. Anyway, so today on the on the podcast, we wanted to talk a little bit at first about some of the wonderful responses we've been getting about people celebrating the Mr. T party. Uh, so let me ask around to the panel. Any of you guys celebrate uh, Mr. T's birthday on Friday, May 21st? This was an event we had publicized on Facebook and encouraged people around the world to join hands and sing in praise of gold chains and fool pitying and jibba-jabba dis- d- dismissal, as it were. I would so, have done something, a far more elaborate celebration in my office, which, as we've remarked before in this podcast, is a certain type of government office. But someone <laughs> else on my team had to have her actual her birthday on that day as well, too. <laughs> All the, the spotlight from Mr. T. Uh, but I did explain to uh, my, my colleagues that this birthday was special because it also it shared a birthday with Lawrence Turode, Mr. T. Um, yeah. And, and uh, we had a brief singing of the 18 theme. Uh, dun, 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 dun. I don't need to go on. You all know it. Um, I was disappointed, oh, yeah. however. One of the other people who was in attendance in this office party emailed me afterwards, and she says uh, very innocently, I can't get the Mr. T theme out of my head. <laughs> which I responded, well, actually, that was the theme well, to the A-Team. And Mr. T, um, he doesn't quite have a theme song as he does have many theme songs. Well, no, well, the, the show Mr. T, which is the cartoon from the 80s about him traveling around in the bus with the high school gymnasts solving mysteries, which was called Mr. Oh, T. Oh, uh, you well, actually, yeah. by well, actually. <laughs> well, that show had its theme song, and it went, Mr. T! And then it was instrumental, mostly. <laughs> but uh, they would definitely yell, Mr. T! Um, which I think is, is, is something that we can all uh, remember with pride. Wow, in that picture that Mark is showing on the live stream right now, Mr. T has a giant Star of David on his gold chains underneath the cross, which is pretty phenomenal, oh, if you ask me. Like his people, uh, the, the Manteca tribe, the, the Jews also were once in bondage and slavery. This is true. Well, I mean, it's it, it's great about one of the great things about Mr. T and his sort of self-identification as part of this, you know, West African tribe of people is that it doesn't really come from a direct, uh, direct descent into memory. I mean, he learned about this from reading National Geographic, uh, right. and, and sort of made presumptions. So it's like he is as somebody who whose past, of course, has been um, indelibly marked by the you know unforgivable sin of human slavery. Uh, looking for a way to connect that sort of you know hewn and frayed rope of his descendancy, uh, had had tried to piece together what it meant for him to be Mandinka, which is what he believed he was, and uh, you know the mohawk and the gold chains and whatnot are, are symbolic of of that sort of search. Uh, hey, uh, Jordan and Josh, do you guys do anything for the Mister T party? Crickets. I mean, you know, it, was- it says that wherever wherever two or more are gathered in Mister T's name, there is Mister <laughs> T party. Yeah, um, this is true. This is true. Yeah. But 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 actually, I didn't get together with anyone on Friday, so it was just me. So it doesn't count. Were you in like an isolation chamber? Is the, are you in an iron lung of some sort? I 
Kind of, yeah. I've, I mean, I've you do been have a life. Busy. You've been real busy. I do okay. have a life, but 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 uh, but but she she went to Japan. Yeah. I was uh, supposed to fly to Pittsburgh yesterday or uh, Friday, and uh, had to cancel it. And uh, I did, while on the phone with uh, reservations, uh, suggest to the woman that I was not getting on no plane. Uh, and uh yeah she uh she didn't really respond she was just silent for a minute and then sort of went on with canceling my reservation which was really the response i'd hoped for (laughs) i was gonna say exactly what you were gonna say like to really celebrate mr t-day you would need to have her then like shoot you with a tranquilizer dart and put you on the plane anyway <laughs> That's exactly yes. That is in fact exactly what I was going to say. Yes, <laughs> that, is how, that is how they used to put BA Baracus on planes. I kid you not. I was going to say the same thing. They used to inject. You know what I always, him. what I always wondered about that. Why don't they just inject him with enough so that he'll stay passed out for the whole plane ride? Like they always gave him enough so that he would wake up up in the plane, <laughs> and that just seems sadistic, honestly. <laughs> Well, I mean, let's think like about the 18 for a moment. I mean, they're 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 kind of a ragtag operation, right? I mean, they're on the run from the law. They're they're budget controls, right? You only use enough tranquilizer to uh, as as you need to get Mr. T on the plane. No. Oh, because, no, no, because the show right. the A team has a low. Is it because the show the A team has a low budget? No, no, no. Because they actually because the A team themselves, yeah, they, they had didn't have an unlimited okay. budget for for Mr. T tranquilizer. Well, because I was going to say that that's actually not real tranquilizer they use in the show. It's the power of acting. Mr. T is able to pretend like he's been tranquilized. Um, it's, in fact, not, not actually a sedate. I mean, this is just my guess. I get based on my knowledge of his craft and his method that he probably just pretends to be asleep rather than actually being shut up by a tranquilizer. We got some great material in from our readers. Uh, we got some wonderful pictures. We got some video. People singing Mr. Birthday, Happy Birthday, Mr. T. I personally was mostly on the Twitters all day talking about it. I wanted to get people together for it, but I was directing an improv show that went up that night, and it was kind of a special show for my group, so I didn't have the opportunity to host an event. Um, but uh, I think that, that there was a lot of uh, festivity over on the, on the internets. I saw tweets from around the country and around the world uh, talking about Mr. T, uh, and I saw people talking about unrelated things and pandering to our readership by uh, hashtagging Mr. T at the end of it. So that, was, that always makes you feel a little warm and fuzzy on the inside. As, long as, as soon as the capitalists start getting on board, then it, it gets to be pretty hmm. special. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm getting a question from the chat room here. Mr. T was not referenced in the improv show, but he was referenced heavily in the promotional emails for the improv show. Um, so we did not necessarily deliver, but uh, we, you know, we did um, uh, make a facade. And I suppose that you know, the appearance rather than the reality is kind of part of what we're talking about here. But um, I like how you segued directly out of sort of backhandedly complaining about you know Cialis spammers stealing the Mr. T hashtag <laughs> to saying like, yeah, so we use Mr. T's name to sell our yeah. product. <laughs> Don't you understand how this works, Jordan? When somebody else does it, it's wrong. But when we do it, it's right. That's like the foundation of our civilization. Uh, and true. in fact, the reason why Mr. T exists in the first place. No, um, I, I, I won't go into detail about what that I means. That was kind of a, uh, an off. <laughs> so, I mean, no, what you're saying is that like, you can you can be somebody or you can be somebody's fool, and you don't like being somebody's fool, but you're okay fooling people. 
Yeah, exactly. You're okay if other people are your fool. That is, that yeah. is not a, uh, that's not brought up as like a, something to be afraid of or to like not have happen, to not admonish. I mean, because Mr. T was pretty tight with the Reagans, so uh, I think that, you know, never mind. Uh, <laughs> so Why don't you, I, know that I, we I found talking... the picture, by the way, of Nancy Reagan sitting in Mr. T's lap. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty I like the look on his face. It did happen. I mean, it might have been Photoshopped, but probably not. That would no. take. I, 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 was... I know Photoshop, but that's no Photoshop. I can tell from the pixels and also from seeing a few shops in my time, as they say on the internets. Uh, I think yeah. that's the meme for it. Also, yeah. also at that period of time, Photoshop was a razor blade and tape. Yeah. <laughs> it's Photoshop weird. That makes me an... think of drugs. What? Go ahead. Photoshop was an actual shop where you would go to pay people to mess with your photos. <laughs> uh, hey, who here on the podcast uses Photoshop? Like, I know I use it sometimes. I'm Photoshopper, right? And Just Adobe Photoshop was like a, an actual shop made out of Adobe. <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I don't use Photoshop. Uh, I, I use the GIMP, which is the open source version of the uh, the Photoshop. Yeah, I've been using that a lot lately too. Yeah, definitely. That's it's pretty nice. It's free. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. What about you, Josh? Have you ever uh, doctored images for fun and profit? Uh, I do, yeah. I had to had to make a logo for my organization. Done a variety of things like that, mostly for overthinking it, though. Uh, yeah, know, my greatest creations of uh, I think the apotheosis of Joseph Fines was my favorite. Um, that one was but, pretty uh, awesome. I love that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, uh, but uh, I'm still not very good at it. So it still kind of looks like a South Park character when it's like a real person that's on South Park. <laughs> All of my Photoshop looks <laughs> like that. Uh, but I'm sort of okay with that for the moment. Yeah, my favorite rudimentary Photoshop thing to do is just to cut out a picture and put it in the foreground of another picture and, like, let the juxtaposition be the joke. And that's pretty much all that I know how to do. It's very um, I mean, I can also use the erase. Oh, definitely. It's all about two levels of reality. It's like uh, I Photoshop the way that people built the backgrounds for Super Ghouls and Ghosts. It's like three <laughs> different layers of scrolling. Yeah, you're like, it's two levels of reality. Like, layers, Pete. They're called layers. <laughs> layers, right. They're not called levels of reality. Although that would be pretty awesome if that's what they were called. Uh, you can't customize the menu names in GIMP, can you? If it's open source, I can go in there and hack it. Uh, it makes it look like I'm flying I think down you can. I mean, you, yeah. can, you can do what you want, right? I suppose. I guess that it is America, you know, and there is still something. <laughs> <laughs> Take your country back, fools! Oh, speaking of speaking of acts of violence uh, having to do with American history, there was some chatter uh, before the the podcast started about one of the cool new properties that's out there that some of our overthinkers are spending some time with, which is uh, Red Dead Redemption, which is another thing you can do with your time if you don't spend it watching Lost. Uh, which is it's a cowboy, a grand, it's what Grand Theft Horse, right? Is the idea, Josh? You were talking about it, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's it is Grand Theft Horse. It's made by the Rockstar guys and. Uh, it's sort of a fictional three-county area somewhere in the southwest, and uh, as as you put it, yeah, it's it's uh, you get to be in a Sergio uh, Leone movie. Um, uh, Can you tell some, the podcasters, some, uh, the listeners, who Sergio Sergio Leone? They may not know uh, the the creator of such films as uh, the uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, right. The guy who made Clint Eastwood a star. Uh, it was an Italian director who uh, sort of invented or was sort of the, the the biggest success in the spaghetti Western genre that popped up in the 70s primarily. Um, a lot of great Westerns came out of, strangely enough, Italy. Um, and 
Leon was uh, the sort of the, the biggest player therein. Um, so yeah, the the Red Dead Redemption. It's just the the scale of it is really amazing. Um, the detail, the the sunrise, the sunset, like everything changes sort of perfectly in time. Uh, it's really just a work of art. Um, well, I haven't played it enough. Go ahead, Jordan. I said this is an interesting thing because one of the things that's so important for actual Western movies is that landscape. You know. Like yeah. I, when I when I see the trailer for that, and like yeah, it looks like it's going to be a Sergio Leone movie. But I, I try to think, how could you possibly make a game out of that? I mean, before before the the podcast started, I was like, so is there a mini game where you have to like press A really fast so that it cuts back and forth between your eyes and your opponent's eyes for like five minutes before one of you shoots the other? And like the other thing that's that's so important to it is like these huge, gorgeous shots of giant stretches of desert. Which I don't think of Grand Theft Auto as really having that, but what you're saying, it sounds like this one really delivers on that front. It's gorgeous. Uh, there's here's, a, the, a, here's a practical question, Josh, on, on, that, on that subject. How does it handle the open-ended nature of a game like this, where you could theoretically just kind of like just head in a direction in the desert and just keep going for like an hour? You know, I haven't tried that because the the, the sort of I actually like that they did this, but you you literally have to ride everywhere. So, like, there are times where you go from one side of the map to the other. That's, it's, like, eight minutes of, like, holding down X so your horse goes. <laughs> um, which, I mean, it's one of the reasons, like, the, the sort of detail is, is, is required. Because um, that would just kill you if, if, if it was uh, sort of badly rendered, um, you know, the same plant every place. Um, <laughs> there's, like, always something going on. And, like, you know, there's hawks flying over in shadows and there's... Uh, sort of characters you run into, people you pass. Um, it's just, it's very well done. And one of the things that I find really interesting about it is th- there's a, there's an honor meter. And I don't, uh-huh. I've, I've heard about, yeah. So like, if you hunt down a guy, uh, you know, you find a wanted poster and get the bounty on it, your honor goes up. Or, you know, if somebody's kid is missing and you help go find the kid, your honor goes up. And the townspeople treat you with respect and sort of admiration. Um, but say you kill an innocent, your your honor goes down, and so you can you can choose to play the game one of two ways. You can try to be like the upstanding hero, or you can just be like the worst villain in the place. Um, <laughs> there ought to be a way to play for ugly too, right? Like theoretically. Yes. <laughs> No, play X for good and for bad, and then it's like don't shave and don't bathe, and like all of a sudden, like break your yeah, nose. yeah, like go go to go to the chili truck and eat a whole bunch of chili, so you get grossly overweight. You can be the ugly. So it's like this is now this is a um, so this is a, a a conceit that was I think widely popularized with Knights of the Old Republic, right? But um, which is the whole like you can take two paths through the game, and one is good and one is bad, and it sort of changes gradually. But you're kind of rewarded for taking an extreme stance, right? Like being in the middle, you don't get any of the sort of bells and whistles. But if you get really really good, you get fun things, and you go really really bad, you get you get unfun things. Um, now, I'm trying to think if there was anything that was older than that. I'm sure there were. I'm sure there were games that were older than Knights of the Old Republic where, you know, your good actions or your bad actions were rewarded. I mean, it, back when I played the old Sierra game, Conquest of the Longbow, it would keep track of your uh, – it's a Robin Hood game. It keep track of your ethical actions over the course of the game, and at the end of the game, you would go on trial, and, like, the people you were nice to would speak up for you. Um, I, I, this so, is a, I, know, I thought this was a pretty common conceit in, uh, in role-playing games, uh, particularly Ultima from back in the day. Anybody play Ultima? Oh, that's right. That's where it comes from, Ultima, yeah, right? Yeah, Karma. But, 
right? Yeah. And if you killed, yeah. uh, if you killed civilians and took their money, uh, that would count against you. And all. I can't remember like all of the various long-term implications of it, but definitely like you know, if you tried to steal things, like guards would come out and try to go after you and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, these games are you know way older, you know, to handle the sophisticated sort of branching that I'm sure happens in something like uh, a modern game like Red Dead Redemption. But uh, the concept is definitely there. It's been around for a while. No, I think that's you. Oh, I was going to say, I feel like the sort of the, the innovation that um, the things like Knights of the Old Republic add, although I'm not sure that's the first, is the idea that um, it's not just a question of keeping your, your goodness meter high enough. I'm pretty sure that most of the old ones, like, if you're good enough, then you get a prize of some kind. And it's harder to be good. So you're rewarded for doing the hard thing. Whereas these, like, you really, if you, if you want to be evil, you can be evil. And they like they bother to program in little goodies you can only access by being evil. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think in the old Ultima games there were often very complex systems of virtue, uh, and I remember there being a sort of Venn diagram. What was it? Valor, compassion, and um, and honesty. Uh, and the, there were different intersections of the uh, of the different virtues. So valor and honesty was honor, and like valor and compassion was courage, or something like that. And there was a class for each one of these, and then the middle was spirituality, and then humility was off to the side. That was one of the ultimas for the old eight bit Nintendo. Uh, and yeah, and you could give money to people to try to uh, to amp up your uh, your your virtue in one thing or another, and different actions at different effects. No, I, I wasn't saying that Kotor was the first one, but I do think that it had a pretty huge impact. Like this time around in the the marketing of these things and the inclusion of this kind of system in kind of big budget games that are being made nowadays. Um, I mean, people want moral clarity or they want cause and effect more than anything else. Like they want to be able to affect their character. They want to make character choices in their, in their games. Right. Um, Yeah. But I feel like, I feel like already it's tipping to the point where, yeah, people want to be able to affect stuff, but having one sliding scale from good to bad is like, that's artificially limiting. That's not how, consequence and causality actually work in real life and i think people are, are wise to that you know well, right like, in, until they make the like free roaming shield game they're probably yeah. <laughs> black and white is really all they need i mean the game that i keep coming back to in reference to all this is shenmue have you guys played shenmue uh, which i say like with a heavy heart um, Shenmue is, is Shenmue is a Dreamcast game, which uh, attempts to. It's part of this sort of idea that you're going to make a game that's kind of like real life. So you have to like take care of a cat and like run errands, and you can go to the arcade. It's like Grand Theft Auto, except instead of running around with like guns and cars and prostitutes, you have like you can go to the store, and, and like not even in like a fun Tamagotchi kind of way, you know, where it's like, hey, I'm Link and I'm fishing for no reason. Um, it was like, like we're going to try to include in this adventure mystery plot the mundanity of being a Japanese teenager. Uh, hmm. and, and it turned out to be like a conceit that they invested a great deal of their uh, kind of, you know, not capital in a monetary sense necessarily, but just sort of, they sort of banked on the Dreamcast being the next generation for that kind of gaming with Shenmue and the proposed Shenmue 2. Um, and, and I've got people did, in the chat. Basically, jokes. basically yep. what happened was they said, okay, We've attracted a casual audience to gaming with The Sims. Now we want them to become like normal gamers who play Final Fantasy and like uh, and Halo and things like that. So let's make something that is a cross between Halo and The Sims, and that's a terrible you know, that, idea. That would be hilarious. <laughs> like if we were actually Master Chief, and he was like, he, like you had to like you had to like um, feed your cat, but you couldn't go outside the sight lines, or the sniper would get you. Like that would be pretty great. You'd have to like dodge around your furniture and stuff like that. That would be pretty. That awesome. could actually be I like a pretty decent. 
a pretty decent game made where it's like you are somebody living in like a horrible war zone. And you're not like a hero. You're not trying to win the war. But you've got a cat that you really like. And the, the goal of the game is to like keep your cat alive through unreasonably terrible circumstances. You know? <laughs> like towards the end, like you get captured and you go to a prisoner of war camp and you have to like smuggle in the cat and, so, and like steal rations from the other prisoners in order to keep your cat fed. No, I got keep a better you play as the yeah. cat, you guys. You oh, you can unlock the cat? <laughs> yes. Oh, that'd yeah. be crazy. <laughs> So, like, here at tonight's Overthinking It podcast, we're finding the hyper-bleak existential worldview of the remaining Overthinking It podcast <laughs> yeah, as we try yeah. to hold on to some small shred of goodness in a world gone mad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, by the way, the computer game I played uh, that was most like that was the PC Blade Runner game, um, which came out a while ago, where you did have a dog. Like, you had a dog that you had to feed periodically. It was a very small game element, but... And again, not like in a Tamagotchi fun time kind of way. You had to like stop by your apartment and feed your dog from time to time. And of course, in the world of Blade Runner, a dog is tremendously valuable and difficult to replace because you know. Yeah, I was going to say, does it turn out? I was going to say, does it turn out to be an electric dog? But then I was like, whoa, mind blown! Because of course, it's an electric <laughs> dog. It's in a computer game. Yeah. <laughs> 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 this is, that reminds me of uh, oh, I was thinking of some crazy post I wanted to write about we were talking about Red Dead Redemption earlier and we talked about oh when you call the horse do you use your ocarina to like call the horse to come to you across the <laughs> southwest but no you in fact whistle but yeah I, I was thinking about how in um, video games where you play a musical instrument like you are playing the music of the video game like the level, a layer of reality is stripped out a sort of layer of translation so it's like oh man what it would be like what would it be like if I could play a real musical instrument you'd be like well it'd be a lot like pushing the buttons to make specific sounds, which is what you're doing now. Um, which is, of course, not what you do in, like, guitar, rock hero, band, whatnot. Anyway, um, so we were talking about Red Dead Redemption. You mentioned something I wanted to go back to briefly, that the Sergio Leone movies in specifically, and Spaghetti Westerns in particular, were heavily anchored in shots of the wide, expansive desert, which gets back to this whole sense of the holding on to a shred of hope in a bleak and hostile world that we've sort of come to in our great uh, Lost uh, finale podcast here. Um, so I was thinking, what do you think a Lawrence of Arabia video game would be like? Because that also has really huge shots of a vacant desert, right? Like, could you make, like, Grand Theft Lawrence of Arabia? Would that, would that work out? Of course, it probably wouldn't really be politically correct, but... Uh, yeah. I mean, like, the game they would probably actually make would be a, like, real-time strategy game. Where you have to mobilize your Arab Arab horsemen and attack train convoys and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You so a, you yeah. have a name for it though. Uh, Ed Ev Devs in the chat room uh, <laughs> supplies Grand Theft Camel. It would come with you know how they have these like these special controllers that are specific to the game, right? Mm. Like you've got the guitar thing, you've got the skateboard thing for the Tony Hawk game that utterly tanked. The Lawrence of Arabia one has, like, a match controller that you have to not care that it hurts and, like, put out with your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so, George, you've seen that movie, right? Because I got you a copy of that movie for your, for your wedding, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Indeed I have. It, and thank you, because it is a wonderful yeah. movie. It is a fantastic yeah, I, 
I got you like the epic prize pack of DVDs for the sort of uh, wedding DVD party. And was Lawrence of Arabia, Gandhi. Was there one and other wait, wait. one? Yeah. And, and then and, the third uh, one has to be wacky. <laughs> the, third, the third one was, of course, the entire uh, the entirety of the Chronicles of Riddick, uh, yes. including Pitch Black, I believe. So oh, yeah. Three. Yeah. <laughs> the third one was fractal, right? Because yeah, like, exactly. you, you can't just give one Riddick movie. You need to give the Riddick set. Exactly. Well, because if you don't watch Pitch Black, then you're not going to understand why it's, it's supposed to be relevant in the second movie that he can see in the dark, which it doesn't seem to be relevant. Um, there, so, yeah. there, Riddick, Riddick 2 is greenlit, right? Uh, I heard. I heard news. Because they used the Riddick 2 money, uh, I think, to make the Incredible Hulk remake. <laughs> like, because uh, they realized they didn't want to make it because the first movie didn't do so good. Um, but no, I heard, I heard tell that uh, he's making another one, and I can't wait for one because Vin Diesel, he's a hot property again. I wrote about that after uh, Fast and Furious last year. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, it's man. also kind of... Um... I hope because – so for those of you who don't know out there in the chat room, out there in podcast land, Pitch Black, which is where the character of Riddick comes from, is basically an – I mean an alien knockoff and quite a good one. And it's like it, it makes – it has the same virtues that Alien has, which is that it has a very limited space, very limited cast of characters, and then it makes the best possible use of them, you know? And it's very spare. There is no fat on that, right? Riddick yeah. is a sprawling, bloated epic, <laughs> which invents not, not one, but two universes full of various alien races and Judy Dench and collides them all in utterly profligate ways. So the only way, like, they need to continue this trend. Riddick 2 needs to be, like, 50 hours long, right? <laughs> It needs, yes. it needs to start with like uh, the the Bronze Age on Riddick's homeworld and just follow <laughs> it all the way through. Yes, I yes. disagree. I think it should be like Howard's End, but set in space. <laughs> like it should be an intensely personal, like quiet upstairs, downstairs British drama film. Starring <laughs> so it's, it's about. <laughs> Yeah, Riddick, Riddick ends as like nobility, right? So uh, in the, yeah. the Chronicles of Riddick, so you just need him to have a servant, and then have them have some kind of tortured relationship. <laughs> oh, and to, to answer to answer inmate, I believe uh, inmate in the chat room. Yes, there is a third animated Riddick movie that I think came with the DVD set that I gave Jordan in his epic. Pack. Oh, I believe it was a trilogy. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, sort of the, like the, the animation. Yeah. The, the animated movie is a sequel to the Butcher's Bay Riddick video game, which is apparently good. Yes. Yeah, the Riddick franchise is notable uh, because it's one of the few franchises I know of where the video games are widely believed to be far better than the movies. Um, and that's kind of rare that you hear that because usually movies based on video games or video games based on movies are not so good. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> Also true of movies based on video games. <laughs> this is true. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of problems that happen when people try to do such things. This is true. So speaking of movies that we probably shouldn't be seeing... I heard that Mark Lee was spending his not watching lost time doing something very special this week. And Mark, can you share it with everybody at home, please? Uh, you could call it very special, I suppose. Anyway, so, I can call it special uh, in sort of a short bus kind of way. I shouldn't say it that way. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of you are probably familiar with the uh, ultra B-grade horror movie Troll 2. Uh, <laughs> how about the rest of you that's, uh, familiar with this? That's some great inflation there. b Right. B? Yeah. <laughs> you know that B, B means good and C means acceptable. Would you say this was an accept, a better than acceptable movie, Mark? 
<laughs> well, I'll, I'll get back to that in terms of like. Answer the how, question. How, there are five lights. No. Um. <laughs> from, from an objective, purely normative point of view, it, it is it is a bad movie. It is in you know, fact the, the worst movie uh, of perhaps the worst movie ever made. Um, anyway, so there's you know, that objective, movie. Objective and normative are mutually exclusive. You can't say something can't be objective and normative nah, at the same. Nah, okay, big words. I don't really know how to use, <laughs> but try to use anyway because I'm on this podcast. Anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the um what i saw first this weekend was the documentary about troll 2 the retrospective documentary best worst movie which was made by one of the child star in that right the kid joshua um who uh it was tried to reconcile uh, his uh tried to reconcile the fact that he made this awful movie and the fact that it's become a cult classic and is celebrated for its awfulness um, with his current life and, and all what everyone else is doing right now. So the movie goes around the documentary, uh, follows as some of the former cast members reunite and uh, in the, you know, around 2007 when the movie is kind of rediscovered and becomes a real sort of phenomenon. They do a tour. They kind of, you know, get this strange taste of celebrity out of this awful movie. Uh, they see the, the sort of the limitations of that as well as they go to awful horror, uh, the, the conventions where they're not really paid attention to and, uh, and their celebrity isn't really worth anything at that point. Um, the movie's fantastic. It is uh, best worst movie that is. It's fantastic. It's a great inter- retrospective back. The interesting thing that I kind of wanted to talk about though was I saw that movie first. I, I, I saw sort of all the backstory and implications around it, about especially about how the Italian director who made it, at least in the movie, came off as seeming like he. Uh, was trying actually to make something that wasn't campy, that was, he was being fairly serious about it, but that, and, and, you know, as everybody's laughing about it, he really doesn't quite get it. He's not in on the same joke that everyone else is in. And then going back and watching the actual movie itself and how it's so bizarre and so just far off the beaten track, trying to reconcile a lot of thoughts about camp, <laughs> about uh, artistic intent, about setting out to make something or, or and having something completely different come out and how all this how all this comes together and why there are no trolls in a movie called Troll 2 and they're only <laughs> There's a lot of questions on my mind as you can as you can tell. So I have come here to the overthinking it panel uh to to uh to help decipher this. Okay. Mark before we get into it, what is in Troll 2? <laughs> Goblins. Gosh. <laughs> I can, I can actually Small explain goblins the... in terrible makeup. <laughs> in, in, I can actually explain that. I can explain that a little bit, Josh. Um, so Troll 2 is not actually a sequel to Troll 1. Uh, troll 1 is a movie about a troll that lives in a San Francisco apartment building, I believe, that turns the people who live in the apartment building into plants. Um, and I think that uh, – oh, gosh. Was it, it wasn't Jennifer <laughs> Yeah, you're Anderson. making this a lot more clear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, Troll 1 was like a moderate, like, schlocky, B-movie, like, creature feature success. And so they had made this movie about these goblins that was going to be called Goblin. But uh, they realized that Troll had been kind of successful, so they just changed the name of the movie to Troll 2 while they were working on it, um, despite the fact that they didn't retcon anything that had happened in the movie to include Trolls. So Hmm. they had already done all the dubbing and all of the the voice parts and stuff. and then they sort of slid in there. And yeah, like the, the goblins look like they're wearing like really bad latex masks from the costume shop. Um, like not even textured ones. It's just really, really terrible. Um, so it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, there was a pretty, there was a pretty good coverage in the New York Times about it this past week, which is I think probably one of the things that prompted Mark to, uh, 
to uh, to to watch it to watch this this documentary, which seems to have a certain kind of um, vibe to it, similar to like King of Kong, right? Where it's sort of tracking these kind of hidden world celebrities. Uh, King of Kong being the famous documentary about the uh, record in Donkey Kong uh, right. and the sort of pursuit of that record. Um, and uh, and this seems to be in this sort of same sort of genre of kind of like not really self promoting, but like sort of promoting. Um, but also related to the sort of under under culture where there's sort of demigods who walk among us, but they are very very specific demigods, like the yeah. kid who was in Troll Two. That, that's that's so. really good. It's more less about the kid and more about the father in that actually. Who oh, uh, yeah. it's, it's discovered he's a small town dentist in Alabama, a very nice guy, just you know, kind of leads a normal life, just happened to be in this you know uh, uh, awful horror movie cult classic. Um, mm-hmm. And how he, you know, comes sort of comes back out on the scene, but it is it is also very much about just in general the um, the subculture that has come around um, mm-hmm. the, the the movie. Um, but the thing that I most wanted to talk about though was going, you know, to sort of go back and hone my rambling and the way that I and the question that I'm presenting is go back to this idea of camp and how is it what constitutes a camp. A camp movie, and can you actually fully go into a movie and want to try to make it campy? Does that make sense? In other words, like mm. if I go out to a movie and set out to make a movie and I set out to make it campy, um, then it therefore cannot be campy. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that for Troll 2 specifically, from what I've read, and I actually haven't seen it myself, I just know the stories, and it's kind of famous in moviedom, um, because it was the worst movie in the world, or according to IMDb, for a long time, um, is that the people in it were not, I mean, the actors, maybe, the ones who were featured in this movie, maybe, but that most, according to reports, most of the people in this movie were pretty joyless, and like pretty kind of like like worn down by life <laughs> again facing that sort of bleak existential desert of the real uh that you face when you're riding your your horse across the red dead redemption desert um but yeah i mean so i don't know i mean i mean campy has implies that there's some sort of joy right uh <laughs> i have to hang on backtrack a second the desert of the real that you encounter when you're riding your fictional horse across a fictional <laughs> desert <laughs> And I Look say that to become. Look at what you've become. <laughs> uh, like I, I mock, and yet at the same time, that is like that's as close to reality as I think like anyone will ever come. <laughs> <laughs> you, you all have heard like just to backtrack for a minute. You all heard about the game Desert Bus. You know about this? No, no. It's a it's a never officially released game that was created um, by Penn and Teller, the comedy magicians. And the game Desert Bus requires you to drive a bus from, I think it's from, from like Reno to Salt Lake City or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's a straight stretch of highway. And this happens in real time. So like it would be an eight hour drive and you have to play the game for eight hours in order to beat yeah. it. <laughs> and you can't I've, just I've done that it. drive and uh, you could play video games while doing it and still drive yeah. fairly safely. Yeah, except in, in, in this case, because they realized that it would be fairly easy to just hold down A with tape, right? Your bus has bad steering, and it pulls slightly to the left. <laughs> so every now and then, you have to press over to the right. There's some poor guy who decided to, for charity, he would play Desert Bus and drive back and forth as many times as necessary, as long as people kept like donating to a children's hospital or something to keep him doing it. And like... People kept him doing it for like a week because it went viral. 
and people who would never donate to charity were doing it just to keep torturing this poor bastard <laughs> to drive his boats. Anyway. So, so here's, a, here's a question, Jordan. Are there checkpoints? No. 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 So you can't, like, save? <laughs> no. Okay. That's a shame. So this actually reminds me of that Flash game that went around last year called Janie Thompson's Marathon. Did you ever play that? No, no. Oh, it's like a it's like a Flash game, but it looks like an Atari game, and you have to push the two buttons to make her step, like right foot, left foot, and then she just runs a marathon. Like and it's like a whole, a whole marathon, amazing. Yeah, so it's like a whole actually, marathon. It's not, yeah. I think this relates to the question that Mark brought up: is like yeah. camp, right? To a certain degree, these are camp exercises. You know, no one, no one would play them for the reasons that one normally plays games. You have to be playing right. them for some other reason. And I think yeah. that that is part of what makes something campy is that, that artifice, right? That pretending to be something that you are not. And in these cases, like both the creators, the creators are pretending to create a game where, hey, it's fun, you run a marathon, but actually they're creating a torture device. And the players are sort of <laughs> pretending to, oh yeah, I'm playing, I'm playing Desert Bus, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat the high score. But in fact, they're just doing something, you know, deeply miserable, right? Right, right. Troll, Troll 2 maybe doesn't quite work for the creators because they ostensibly thought that they were doing exactly what they did. Right. But I do think that you, Mark, can go in and watch it and make it be camp. I think that camp is ultimately something that the fans decide what is camp or not. And if you sit down to watch Troll 2 with the right frame of mind, then you can make it a camp experience. Mm. So I can make uh, like uh, the Cream Master or the Godfather a camp experience with the right state of mind? Yeah, yeah, I mean, good movies can be camp. I think that The Godfather in some ways is camp, actually. Like, the way that people actually watch The Godfather. I don't think that many people sit down and watch The Godfather and treat it seriously the way it was intended to be treated. I think there's a lot of kind of posturing and fan fan culture that's not related to the actual work, just related to sort of connecting with fans. Like, mm. I mean, like, anybody like, who like ever... would jump up and make us all be quiet during the uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, anyone, anyone who has ever bought a box of brought a box of cannoli to a Godfather viewing party has been treating it as a camp exercise, I would say. Except for my uncle, my uncle Al, if he ever, he probably just likes cannoli, but he probably didn't know oh. that we were watching the Godfather. Actually, that, my enough. uncle Al's never brought cannoli to anything that I know of that I've been to. He's a great guy. But he lives in Arizona. I don't see him that often. Uh, <laughs> I was just hoping that there would be somebody out there who's like, what? Cannoli? We're watching this movie? Oh, okay. Um, you're yeah, actually not I, allowed to have cannoli in Arizona now without documentation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about yeah, the desert a, of the real. Jeez, it, Christ. It's a suspicious-looking pastry, you know? Like. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I remember those Alec Alec taco-like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're looking, a little, you're looking pretty taco-like there with that little fold and roll there, huh? Are you thinking you're going to put some stuff in there, some fillings? You sure it's not spicy? No, it's got candied fruits in it and some custard that's kind of like a cheese thing with ricotta. Wait, say that again. <laughs> I, I love cannoli, but thinking of them as a sweetened cream taco, I now hate cannoli. So <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. I just remember there was an Alitalia ad a bunch of years ago that where a woman was eating a cannoli in like a very suggestive way. I might have even yeah. talked about it on the podcast years ago when I saw it because the podcast has been going on for a while now. But yeah, like I think she was like holding the cannoli at kind of a 45 degree angle upward and like looking upward while she was eating the cannoli. It was kind of kind of the most awful thing that I've ever seen on the side of a bus. Um, and there's a lot of awful things that are on the sides of buses, like those pictures of the poor children with the hair lips, which are so sad. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think su- suggestive is not a strong enough word for the way that she was holding that cannoli. Like suggestive yeah. implies that it could be taken another way. That's true. It was, you know what? It was, it was like the international nonverbal sign for fellatio. You know, it was, <laughs> it was iconic in the same way that the radiation symbol and the biohazard symbol are iconic of danger. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's what I ask you about camp, right? So camp depends upon a self-conscious departure from a kind of mutually understood reading context for a given piece of art, right? And a sort of sense of legitimacy and you depart from the legitimacy deliberately. But um, I wonder what happens over time if what we think is camp instead gravitates back toward the reading culture that serves the same role, analogous role, to the reading culture that existed before. Um, If that doesn't make any sense, I guess I'll I'll explain. Um, I often use Thundercats for this reason, but I guess they're kind of <laughs> – Thundercats is a bad example because it doesn't hold up, but we'll use it anyway because Thundercats is really awful to watch right now. But you know, if you watch Thundercats like thinking, oh, like I as an adult am not supposed to watch Thundercats, um, you know, I have a job. Like I'm not supposed to watch Thundercats. Uh, oh, I'm going to be so campy by like watching it. Uh, and then you know, people pick up, oh, they're watching Thundercats. Like let's put it on primetime television on cable. Like let's market it. Let's, let's sell ads for Dockers like while you're watching Thundercats. So it becomes – you know, part of the same sort of expectation for what people think you ought to be doing that you were departing from in the first place when you're watching Thundercats. And I've talked about this before, and I think that this is the obvious, like, conformist poser thing that we've all been talking about since we were 14. Um, but people still keep calling it camp, right? Like, like, even as things become mainstream, they keep being called camp uh, because of a sort of memory of the way that our norms used to be, which is not the way that we live with our norms anymore. Um, yeah. So it, do we need like a sort of like, it, like there's uh, one of the things that also amuses me about uh, criticism is there's so many different uh, literary terms that all just mean the new thing. And they have to keep up coming mm. up with new words for the new thing, you know, like modern, like postmodern contemporary, you know, like um, even, even uh, gosh, like, you know, the new wave, like all this stuff. It just means the stuff that just happened. You know, yeah. Yeah. No, to name it something else. Um, let me um, so- let me let me uh, argue with you a little bit though, because I think that what you're talking about there is is the idea of hipsterish irony, right? Right. Um, and I'm not sure that camp is necessarily quite exactly the same as that. For instance, okay. and I, I don't think this is this isn't the only thing that can be camp, but for a very long time and in many ways, um, camp was considered a like a queer way to read things. So you talk about the Wizard of Oz being something that has camp elements to it. And it's like a way for homosexuals to relate to an entertainment industry that marginalizes them and a culture that marginalizes them and so on and so forth. There's been a lot written about that. I don't know with something like that, like the fabulousness of Judy Garland, right? Does it matter how many people think she's fabulous? Does it ever stop being camp in that sense? See, I knew that there was a, a, tr- a sort of not truer, but a more precise definition of camp that we were coming from, and I couldn't remember what it was. But no, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That um, that I guess what it is. It's just sort of 
it's sort of like uh, subliminal stuff for gay culture. In which case, the yeah. campiest artist right now is probably Lady Gaga. She's very camp, right? Because she's sort of a gay performance, a performance artist for a largely gay audience, right? In her uh, in her live shows yes. back in the day, and so there's this very heavy camp element what she's doing, but it's not what we would think is camp if we're talking about watching like the Adam West Batman show. Right. Sure. Like, sure. Although, I mean, it would, it would be totally not that it would be impossible to watch the Adam West Batman show and, and sort of read the, the queer subtext into it. You know, <laughs> that's <laughs> true. Honestly, that's actually probably a terrible example. Uh, in fact, <laughs> like it's hard to think. But, of well, how about but Thundercats? No, wait a minute. Thundercats. You're making my life difficult. <laughs> Can I nominate a podcast title? I know you're not supposed to do this for your own minds, but Panthro, you're making my life difficult. I'd like to nominate. Well, we'll, we'll consider that. We'll consider that. I think it works because for a variety of reasons that we've already discussed. Um, yeah. And so I think I think that we have to bring this to a close. I think that speaking of things being difficult, uh, it's really hard to say goodbye to all you people. I don't know if they're going to let me be in charge again for a while because I've messed the whole place up. I broke the lamp. You know, I was playing football inside of the house. Rather's going to come in here. He's going to be real mad at me. Uh, so I'm going to have to clean this place up. So we, we should scurry along. But any final thoughts tonight? Any final predictions for what's going to happen in the Lost finale that is already airing? <laughs> That's probably in the late <laughs> second hour right now. Any predictions? Let's go around quick. Mark, predictions for Lost. That the fans are going to be disappointed no matter what. Okay, Stokes, predictions for Lost. Dragon King returns. <laughs> I can't wait to see it. Uh, Josh, predictions for Lost. Jack Bauer tortures Saeed and saves all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Peter Fenzel, and my prediction is that um, tomorrow we'll all be tweeting about something else. So uh, that email is podcastoverthinkingit.com. That number is, again, 203-CUJO-401. That's 203-285-6401. Is Cujo spelled with a C or a K? C. Okay, so I got that right. Excellent. All right. So make sure you dial in. You know, we'll be seeing some recaps of the Mr. Tea Party stuff. I want you to dial in and say nerds. Dial in and tell us what you were doing other than Wild and Lost. Just dial in and tell us what it's like to uh, experience the desert of the real in your own lives and the uh, the bleak reality that we all face on a day-to-day basis and or how much fun we have watching Thundercats. But until <laughs> next time, all you cats and dogs and crazy folks out there. Uh, this is Overthinking It, and you have just uh, listened to the Overthinking It podcast, which, once again, is the website that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably does not deserve. All you cats and dogs and snarfs. Snarf! <laughs> Okay, Pete, are you, are you ready to record it? Uh, your date is, uh, what's tomorrow's date? May 24th. So wait, how exactly does it go? I've never actually listened to the podcast. So before May 24th, do the, you, you what? You, <laughs> <laughs> Mark, I haven't either. We're on them. Yeah, I, I, I'm terrified of my own voice. Well, we've gone over um, this before. I'm the only person who's actually on the podcast and goes back to, goes back and listens to it. Yeah, yeah, Check yeah. for things like audio quality, guys. And, um. Okay. Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I appreciate you, Mark. Uh, you, you were breaking up on that last sentence a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>